Welcome to the New Flesh Podcast, the podcast you deserve. My name is Jonathan Astro. With me is Ricky Allpike. What's going on, Ricky? I'm excited. We've got a we've we've got a great interview and a great guest coming up um, to talk about a uh, a really important documentary that uh, that hopefully everyone can go out and see. Absolutely. Yes, we have uh, Desh Amelia, Amelia with us t- today, and he's here to talk about Better Left Unsaid. We've talked about Better Left Unsaid on this podcast before, so you know, please, everyone, uh, get out there and support it um, as soon as possible. Well, um, I, don't, I, I feel like we should, <laughs> we should get straight into it. <laughs> we should. We should. Okay. All right. Well, we'll see you on the other side. Product of immigration, integration, and innovation, Sri Lankan-born Desha Miller started from humble beginnings before realizing his dream was in the West and migrated to Melbourne, Australia in 2000. Desh has since pioneered his career as an entrepreneur, entertainer, and educator on a global scale. He is the producer of an amazing documentary titled Better Left Unsaid and is here today to talk about the film. Uh, thanks so much for coming on. How are you, Desh? I'm great. Thank you for having me on the show. Fantastic. Well, look, I would just love to ask you first. I really want everyone to watch this documentary. So, can we just get that out of the way first? How can people see Better Left Unsaid? And you know, what's what's the best the best way of getting this done? Well, if you really want to support independent filmmaking and see a good uh, documentary, uh, the best way for this particular film is if you go to betterleftunsaidfilm.com and you can watch it directly off our website. Um, Alternatively, if you prefer iTunes or Google Play uh, or Voodoo, all of those platforms have the film for you to watch. That's great. Uh, perhaps you could tell us a little bit more about, about your background and, and how, how you came to be a film producer living, living in Australia. Yeah, well, my background is, so as, as you uh, introduced me, I moved to Australia you know, 20 years ago, 20 plus years ago, um, to study filmmaking. Um, because you know, when I was in Sri Lanka, we didn't really have a university that would teach filmmaking. Um, but I was I was very curious in that storytelling has always been part of me. Um, and I got to Australia. I did my uh, you know bachelor's degree at uh, Deakin University in Melbourne. But unfortunately, uh, and this story is uh, not unique in in any stretch of anyone's imagination, lots of immigrants go through this. You know, I came into a country which I couldn't speak the language and had no money. Uh, So that journey was very challenging and really, really difficult. It's the most challenging time in my life. Uh, And this is, I just came from a country that was in the middle of a civil war. So you can imagine how when I say challenging, I, I really mean it. I'm not being hyperbolic here. Um, but that all, you know, the byproduct of that was, although I had a degree in filmmaking, I didn't really uh, get to use it uh, because I was more concerned about survival. So, you know, I was working three jobs um, trying to just survive. It took me a long time. Eventually, I got into radio. Shout out to uh, FM uh, Student Youth Network in Melbourne. That's where I got my start. From that, I got into the, the events industry, uh, and I was doing everything from promoting nightclubs to managing tours to organizing my own tours. So I was involved heavily in the sort of the hip hop and R and B um, entertainment industry in Australia. Back then, it was very early stages um, of of sort of Aussie hip hop. 
Um, but that eventually led me to um, create uh, a business um, which I recently sold um, called Thinking. Um, that organization uh, before I left was Australia's largest intellectual touring company. At that point, when I created it in, in 2010, 11, uh, I didn't realize that that was not a industry vertical that existed anywhere in the world. So it was the first of its kind. And it, and it really sort of uh, spawned an industry all around the world um, once we got very successful. Um, all of that eventually led me to basically why I came here for, which is filmmaking. Uh, I did a tour with um, Sam Harris and Majid Nawaz. Some of your listeners may know um, uh, those two, um, you know, especially Sam has a pretty large profile. And I was lucky enough to make a documentary uh, inspired by uh, their book, Islam and the Future of Tolerance. And from there on, um, you know, th that came out uh, 2019, early 2019. And then, you know, I've been uh, trying to figure out, all right, what's my next project, which eventually led me to my current project, which is also a feature documentary, Better Left Unsaid. That's great. Yeah, we are, we are big fans of Sam Harris and Majid Nawaz and um, a lot of other people you, that, that feature in your film here. Um, I wanted to ask you uh, a little bit about your uh, your partner in this uh, in this venture, Kurt um, Kurt Jamungle. He he does a great job as the narrator of this film, and um, I read his two camera monologues as as a debate with himself. So that that's something you can't really do with with anyone on the left in twenty twenty one. The way these sections are filmed with with the two camera angles makes Kurt seem like. He's addressing a crowd in a in a public square sort of situation, which which I thought was unique and engaging. And I love his an analytical approach as well. I believe he has a background in mathematics and physics. Um, how did you two meet, and and what was it like working with Kurt? Uh, well, uh, this all came about. Kurt is a big fan of my first film, and he was trying to figure out how did a first time filmmaker. Uh, create a film like that and how did uh, said film achieve the level of success it did. So he reached out to me uh, for advice. Uh, and I'm always, always a big fan of, uh, you know, talking to people who uh, want to take risks like that. And I, I gave him uh, free advice for a little while. Uh, at that point, he was, you know, very early stages of, of the film. And then he, put together what he has already filmed and shared it with me. Uh, and that's when I realized the brilliance that could be better left unsaid. So then, you know, we, we you know, I, I told him, look, you know, if I was doing this, here's how I would do it. Here's what I would change. And here's, here, here are the pitfalls in, in the, the, the uh, this approach. And, you know, he appreciated the opportunity. And then we started working on it. This was, um, uh, <laughs> this was uh, last year uh, at some point, and it's been a fascinating journey because Kurt is um, 
a fascinating mind, he, the way he thinks. We, and this is very important, and I know you, you made a comment, I'm going to push back on this. You said there isn't anyone on the left who you can have a uh, you know, reasonable conversation. You're speaking to one, because I still consider myself in the political left, because uh, a lot of, a lot of uh, you know, policy positions, uh, I, I have relatively progressive positions. Um, but this is, this is a key point I want to make, and this goes towards my relationship with Kurt. Kurt and I disagree on a number of things. And I even go as far as saying this film, there's about 20% of things in this film I disagree with, but that's besides the point. And that's the, uh, the art that is missing. And I want uh, to do my utmost to bring that art back, which is uh, people with uh, disagreeing point of views can still have a... Uh, working relationship, civil dialogue, and have good faith attempts at tackling difficult subjects. And this film is, you know, Kurt is trying to have a good faith attempt at tackling some of these issues. And where he failed, that's where I come in. And I, I, I you know, uh, altered the film, you know, we did a recut, we reshot some things, we rewrote a, bit, a few things and I help editing the film in a way where it is, uh, balanced to to a reasonable degree now with that said i know there is a slight imbalance with regards to the time spent on uh, tackling some issues philosophical uh, issues of the political left uh, and ideological issues that's by design that's the whole point of the movie so i know a few people criticize me on that one you know we spent too much time on criticizing just the left that's not necessarily true because the, that was the intent of the uh, intent of the movie because it's such a taboo subject people don't want to talk about it anyway to you know, wrap up my answer by, uh, uh, with regards to your question. It's been a fascinating journey working with Kurt and, uh, you know, making this film. And uh, if you like the way Kurt operates, he now has a YouTube channel that's, you know, do doing really well where you can really dig into his analytical mind. It's called Theories of Everything. I highly recommend that channel. You feature some heavy hitters in terms of academics and public intellectuals, including some of certainly my most admired thinkers, including Stephen Pinker, you know, who's written some truly life-changing books, uh, really, particularly his, his book, uh, um, uh, um, Angels of Our Better Nature. And uh, appearing in a film like yours could be a career killer in the current climate. Uh, so what was your, <laughs> <laughs> you can push back on any of that, but what was your pitch to the people who you interviewed and did anyone, you know, without naming names, run for the hills? Well, the, the good news is um, when you have been doing what I have been doing for the time I have been doing it, people know that I come from um, a well-intentioned place and I tend to think things through. So it's not an opportunistic, like, you know, I'm not trying to get a soundbite out of you. They know this is going to be a long-form, nuanced conversation. So I have to say I've been lucky enough, everyone we reached out to um, agreed to do it. And that's why you have your... We have a couple of self-identified academics who call themselves Marxist, um, so in the film, you know, who, who, who at the same time, you have people who are on the center right. Um, so when you have that balance, it, it, 
it's an easier pitch. Again, I want to use an example from my previous film. When I was making that film, I had a few people saying, man, you shouldn't make this film because you're going to give all the ammo uh, to, to the far right and the Pauline Hansons of the world. And I, my response was, and you know, I am taking a little dig at um, you know, One Nation here, <laughs> this is intellectually too dense for anyone to take a sound bite out. And when you make a product that is intellectually honest, it, you... You know, you're, it's very hard to appease everybody, but you, know, you, you are making an honest attempt. And that is what helped uh, me get all the names that's on the film. But my, my feeling is that uh, you, you, there were certainly some people in the film that have, uh, you know, rather extreme Marxist views, uh, perhaps. Uh, but I would argue that, you know, extreme left positions or or even anything heading in that direction will go almost completely unchallenged out there it's the people on the you know <laughs> you don't even have to be um on uh, on the on the center right you just need to be on the center left to be getting hate you know i mean stephen pinky himself that that's true that's true and and, and i agree and, and i agree with with that with that categorization i consider myself on the center left that, you know when i say i'm on the left i'm on the center left um and uh, you're right. <laughs> I, I, I've seen this meme recently, you know, this person stands in the center um, and the ground beneath him is slowly moving. You know, and then now people are accusing people who were on the center left have gone to center right and further right, but they haven't really moved. If you read Pinker's work from Better Angels of Our Nature and Lightning Now, or even previously, you can clearly see he hasn't moved, nor has somebody like a Sam Harris. What has happened is, uh, you know, a, a, a political ideology around us has moved. And thus now we are categorized, uh, you know, I, I didn't mean to categorize myself with those grades, but I'm saying even people like me who are attempting to have these conversations are categorized as somewhat on the right. But that's not necessarily uh, an intellectually honest argument to make. Mm. I've, I've heard you've had some trouble promoting this film on social media platforms such as uh, YouTube and Facebook. And I thought maybe could you talk a little bit about the journey you've been on to promote the film? Yeah, it has been... Um, We've had a lot of challenges. Um, I, uh, my last film had some challenges, um, but this film, especially, a lot more challenges. Uh, all the challenges, the, the certain amount of pushback I knew is just the nature of the work I do. Um, but some of the things were just so unexpected. Um, st for starters, we could not, and to date, we cannot run a single ad promoting the film on Facebook. Facebook bans, like Facebook just, you know, we actually lost um, our advertising account. Um, uh, one of, you know, uh, my, my businesses, because we tried three times trying to get this film advertised. And that's just extraordinary that I've never faced that situation. Facebook won't let us run a single ad. And we can clearly see most of our posts about the film also don't reach uh, as far as we would like them to reach. Uh, we can't boost, we can't run traditional ads on Facebook. By default, we can't do anything on Instagram because they're both managed by the same interface. Um, we tried on Twitter, 
And Twitter initially didn't let us run a single ad. And then we had to run a, we eventually managed to run one ad, but it was so underperforming because it missed all the keywords. It was, it was as good as us not running an ad. Uh, Google uh, and YouTube, again, kept flagging us um, for, what do they call it, dangerous content or just basically wouldn't let us run ads. We eventually get some Google AdWords running, but again, same effect as Twitter. It was as good as not running ads because they were charging so much money for a click-through. Uh, it just didn't make, like we couldn't you know, run ads. And that, you know, I've promoted con controversial events and, and, and films. I never faced that issue in the past. And I'm assuming, you know, coming on the back of um, what happened last year, um, oh, sorry, this year, uh, January 6th, I think it, things, you know, and that election, you know, they just had this, um, you know, they took a, uh, uh, a, a blanket approach to blocking anything that they deem even remotely political. And unfortunately, an independent film like mine got caught up in that. Uh, add to that, uh, for my last film, I had a quite a reputable, uh, well-known PR agency based in New York um, doing our PR. And you know that helped us get some pretty serious PR in America for my last film. For this film, I showed the film, the, the owner, uh, the two owners, they loved it. They wrote to me saying, this is a fantastic film. This is an important film. We'd be proud to be a part of it. And we came to an agreement. And as it was ready to be executed, we get a letter from them withdrawing from the agreement saying that their team has seen the film and they feel very uncomfortable by the film. So basically they didn't want a staff revolt. So they just pulled out. That was a huge blow for us because I was reliant on them and their ability. So everything that you are seeing is as independent as it gets. You know, we did not have any real help, but we were extremely lucky uh, thanks to the likes of uh, the kindness of Steven Pinkers, Jordan Petersons, uh, and, and Coleman Hughes, so many of uh, public intellectuals who saw the movie and saw the, the importance of it, they just promoted it for us. And that is what we, it, 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 that's what helped us. And also, you know, Megan Kelly, she's not a public intellectual, but, you know, she promoted the film. That ended up getting the film uh, to number two on iTunes. Um, and, you know, a reasonable set of eyeballs. I have a question here. Now, uh, it's no secret that in Australia, the government screen funding bodies are almost entirely run by, you know, you can uh, come at my, uh, uh, you know, sort of description of who I think works at these places. Um, university educated, uh, left-leaning at best um, and uh, hard left-leaning at worst <laughs> individuals. Uh, this means uh, that a film like yours, ones that challenge popular narratives, are frankly seen as radioactive. Um, you're an intelligent, successful immigrant to Australia, and I only say that because this makes you a unicorn to a certain kind of arts bureaucrat. So, <laughs> yet no major screen bodies, state or federal, funded your film from what I could see. Firstly, is that correct? And secondly, um, you know, how can we get more challenging work produced and funded in Australia? That's a very good question. Um, 
let me put it this way. So to answer your question, it's, it's going to be another slightly long-winded answer, but bear with me. Um, so for my last film, um, when I approached the funding bodies, uh, they, they had a good excuse, which is I'm a first-time filmmaker and I don't have a track record. Uh, so they didn't want to support. Like, okay, no problem. I had a successful business, so I could fund the whole thing and I did it. Um, but I did try to get the film in front of um, you know, pretty big organizations um, and uh, you know, they had various number of reasons to say no. Um, and it's okay, first film, all good. Now I have a successful film, let's go and try raise some funds from these funding bodies second time around. I applied, followed all the protocols, but um, unfortunately I got declined. Um, but I am of the belief, you know, I, I, I don't give up that easily. So I've developed a relationship with the main funding body. And I do have to say, they are always talking to me. They're always very encouraging. Um, and my last film did eventually get a tax rebate um, through one of these funding bodies. Wasn't a big amount, but to me, that shows... There are people within these organizations who just slowly chipping away and, and trying to have diversity of ideas funded. Um, but they, you know, years and years of, uh, uh, you know, groupthink has led them to develop certain um, uh, policies that are relatively narrowly focused on diversity um, and that is a problem but I think some people in power know that and I think they do have um, you know uh, interest in supporting films and I think the only way to change that is people like me uh, uh, who have the ability to do these kind of things, just keep doing it and it's in their face. The mandate for more, most of these organizations is to support um, diverse Australian creators. Now, I, I'm never interested in putting my, um, you know, Sri Lankan uh, born or immigration heritage um, and my brown skin front, but for some people that's important. And some people for strategic reasons, that ticks a box. Right. So I keep doing these things and there's going to be a point where it's going to be hard to ignore. Like Better Left Unsaid um, a few weeks ago won the best international documentary um, at Anthem Film Festival in the U.S. Small festival, but it is a festival that's been running for over 10 years. And Things like that, it's hard to ignore. You know, I, 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 I represented Australia in that festival and I won. So, you know, you can't continue to not fund. So the only way to do is, you know, that's why if, if there's a filmmaker out there who's creating these kind of things, want to reach out to me, I'm easy to find, Google me. I'll tell you all my tricks and in the trade to get these things done. But my aim is to keep knocking these doors. Uh, right now, I have the same tax rebate um, application um, out there um, with one of these funding bodies. Um, let's see what happens. You know, I don't know if it's going to go through, but I'm trying. And oh, my aim is to keep knocking until that door is open. You've got to say uh, the sort of the right um, magic words. It's like a Harry Potter spell. 
look, sometimes it's important to, uh, you know, uh, when you want to make changes in a system, you've got to work within the system and you right. slowly change it. You're right. Yeah, I do have to say some magic words. <laughs> <laughs> I, can we broaden out for a second? I, I, I love all that and I won't get you to incriminate yourself any further with these, with these uh, uh, um, vengeful uh, funding bodies. <laughs> But um, <laughs> could I get you to, uh, no one's, I don't think many people, because you are a filmmaker, you know, and I, I, we are going to dive into the culture wars shortly, but uh, which, I, which I'm really looking forward to. But uh, I think I'd, perhaps people maybe don't, in the stuff I've heard, don't ask you enough about filmmaking and popular entertainment. Um, uh, so as a filmmaker and someone who is involved in, in the arts, do you, what, what do you think about popular entertainment? Is there, you know, uh, today uh, in terms of, uh, you know, there's a lot of discussions about the way these the ideologies, some of them, uh, these movements in your film are affecting art and entertainment today. Do you do you have a perspective on that, or or is it something? Do you think it's uh, perhaps overblown? Look, art has a enormous impact in culture, uh, and America has the largest megaphone, uh, their, their music industry influenced the world, their film industry, their television industry uh, influenced the world. Australia is a couple of years behind generally with everything, but ultimately uh, art helps change perspectives. I mean, uh, the, the, uh, I, I remember uh, reading about a study, the impact of Will and Grace with regards to acceptance of gay rights is significant you know seinfeld's uh, influence in in societal understanding of uh, you know certain aspects it plays an enormous role um and i've been recently lucky enough to speak to some of these uh, decision makers in hollywood um because again some of them are fans of my film uh, and uh, i i challenged them i said you know you, you the issues that uh, dominate society today part of that is you need to take blame because you you keep playing these uh, uh, ideologies in, in in a rather meaningful and influential ways in your music you produce in 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 the films you you fund um tv shows you make it eventually is going to seep to popular culture just you know i i find it cringy when um, a, a multi-millionaire, Hollywood multi-millionaire is knowingly or unknowingly tweets out or, or, or put an Instagram video out uh, spouting um, you know, Marxist ideology as like, it, you know, it's fashionable and they put it out there. And then I'm like, you know, I don't realize, I don't think you realize how insane what you're saying sound in the context of who you are and what got you to the point you are. So to your point, there is a problem. Um, but again, my solution is, well, then the industry as a whole needs to change and the peoples, the power players have to help course correct. And I think it's doable. Well, I think we should dive headlong into these culture wars. R Ricky, what do you think? Yep, I think so. Oh, fantastic. All right. Okay. Well, we got some handy questions for you, Dash. So strap yourself in. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I'll so, try my best. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a filmmaker and entrepreneur. Uh, you know, uh, no 
Pinker or anybody else that was in my film. Just letting you know. <laughs> <laughs> Disclaimer accepted. Okay. Uh, firstly, we'll get your perspective on free speech because I think that seems to be something that's at the core of uh, much of what we speak about in these issues. So from your perspective, what are we talking about when we talk about free speech? Uh, well, this is, a, this is something I've been thinking about um, a bit. I have not fully landed in a position, and that's okay. Um, I don't think I'm a free speech absolutist, but I do think free speech is a pillar in in, in Western civilization and Western society and enlightened. It's part of uh, the enlightened way of thinking. You know, uh, uh, I, I, I talk about this in, in in a number of interviews, right? You know, pe- when people were saying things like, you know, Donald Trump is Hitler, uh, you know, they they and Joe Biden is Stalin. They kind of missed a point, a very crucial point. When uh, Donald Trump was president, there was a point in his presidency. The number one song uh, in America and in, I believe in iTunes was uh, "Fuck Trump." Um, in a in a to- truly totalitarian world, that'll never happen. The guy who made the song w- wouldn't be able to leave his house without, com- you know, just disappearing. Uh, so uh, that needs to exist in 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 the world that we we live in. Uh, I have many policy disagreement with. Uh, I think it was Ad- Adam Brandes who said, you know. Well, a person has the right to be a bigot. Uh, I remember saying, yeah, he's right. You know, one does have the right to be a bigot, just like others have the right to call the bigotry out. But the it shouldn't be mandated per se that, uh, you know, what you can and can't say in, a, um, in an absolute way. I think our ability to say what we want to say, uh, freedom of journalists, um, being able to do their job, that's paramount. You know, again, I come from a country where at one point it was the most dangerous place on planet Earth for journalists. Uh, it was worse than what's happening in South America at one point uh, because you could not say anything even remotely against the government. And as a journalist, it's a death sentence. Um, yet journalists tried doing that. So that's sort of my take on the free speech. John and I have been struggling to understand the, the culture wars for, for several years now. And uh, I think your film's an amazing deep dive on the subject and manages to sum up the whole messy situation and give it a historical context. Um, I'd like to hear how you how you think we got here and 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 how are we in a situation now where debate seems uh, almost impossible where where facts and reason don't matter and where good good intention people can be cast aside as as bigots for for not buying into the extreme left ideology that that surrounds us now. So um, how do you think we we got here? Um, sure, there is a, a prominent cultural intolerance coming from the left. But I do want to you know, say that there are elements within the right as well uh, that th- there are a level of intolerance. And I've seen many people who were against cancel culture was quite conveniently happy to cancel uh, you know, a, a company for doing something ideologically didn't, didn't agree. But with that said, let me address the, your, your, your question about how did we get here? I mean, this is... It's not, not, none of this happened overnight, um, but some people did have a, um, 
understanding of what could happen. I, I, I remember about a year ago reading the late great Christopher Hitchens, Hitch 22, and I was reading it uh, and I was just taken back by the fact that he wrote it uh, the year he died, um, um, which was quite a while now and it is like as he's alive now and he's talking about what's happening and he saw that coming and that is the kind of stuff that you're talking about which is how did the um a group of people who are fundamentally have progressive ideals who uh, have this innate uh, need to look after the smaller guy come to a point where, uh, you know, this uh, doublethink and groupthink and tribalism is quite prevalent, which is, as you and we we identifying the film as the furthest of the left. Um, I don't want to use a blanket term as the entire left because, you know, that's not, that's inaccurate. But there are people uh, within, uh, you know, like in, in my own house I I at certain corners that do have ideas that seems antithetical to the Enlightenment values and the whole entire, uh, you know, the, the Western project. Um, so how do we get here? It, it, it happened over time. Right. It's, it's, uh, it, we trace it all the way back to uh, the advent of postmodernism, the postmodernist thinking, where you know there is no uh, truth. Um, you know, everything is uh, is o o an open debate. You know, and then mix that with um, Marxist ideology, you have this rather. It's really appealing, like when you. you uh, and this is this is a wonderful thing, a wonderfully terrible thing about uh, the left is it, the left the, is is very good at philosophy and, and using words to uh, make a point. And if the words don't make the point, you change the meaning of the words, but you still make a point that sounds really rather reasonable and rational. Um, but that has this philosophical underpinning. Mixing with an ideology is utopian ideology of, of socialism, which doesn't take into the fact of the human condition and how we as humans operate. Uh, over time, romanticizing some of these ideas, giving credence to some of these ideas, and then putting it into popular culture, academia, um, and then ha it having very little to no resistance, intellectual resistance, over time, it permeates into society. And that's uh, why we're here. You know, we in the last few years, we've seen the success, enormous success of public intellectuals in America, like Kimberly Crenshaw, uh, you know, Robin DiAngelo, uh, Ibram X. Kendi, who have these ideas and they have been embraced uh, and, and put it on a pedestal. And that will result in further uh, propagating these ideas and down the track, more uh, creative content is going to come out with this idea. And it'll only going to get much worse before it, it gets better. Mm. Yeah, you, you, you mentioned uh, the, the left's use of, of, of language and 
and and of of, of sort of philosophical language as well. I think the, the red, radical left does a great job of of redefining language to suit their political goals. Uh, the term violence is now broadened up to include speech. Uh, uh, racism is now defined as power plus privilege. Uh, the term white supremacy is now extremely broad and and encompassing an ever growing list of minor transgressions. Uh, was it hard to decipher this and and explain it in an easily digestible way for for the audience? Do you think? I think you know obviously the film speaks for itself. We try to address all these issues. Um, it took us quite a while, and uh, big credit to Kurt for his. Uh, research and and the researchers who helped us to sort of really narrow down where do these uh, sort of word meaning of words come from. Uh, but you're absolutely right. That's that is a thing that is prevalent um, in in the um, extreme left, and that has long term implications. We already have uh, words that have utterly lost its meaning. Um, you know, uh, I, I remember a conversation um, that Coleman Hughes had with Neil deGrasse Tyson. Uh, it's uh, it's called the moral arc of progress. Um, when you look at the plight of African Americans, uh, when you look at the timeline of of the slave slavery a period of slavery to Jim Crow era to uh, you know uh, the the civil rights movement to what it is right now. There is a clear arc that's leading towards uh, progress, and it is entirely undermined when you're using some of the language that was used by people who were truly under oppressive conditions and try to equate, uh, as to use your word, minor transgressions or people's ignorance and trying to equate you know, violence in the context of police unleashing dogs on people because of their skin color or beating them to a pulp is somehow equal to somebody saying something ideologically you disagree with. Those aren't violence in the true meaning of the word violence. Those aren't racist in the true meaning of the word racist. When you keep doing that, the word loses its power. And then, you know, it's a boy who cried wolf. No one's going to take you seriously. And that's the biggest problem the uh, uh, the uh, extreme left is facing now because people are looking at it going, that makes no sense. You know, it's it's like emperor has no clothes. Some of, you know, people are speaking out. Do, do you think that we're not giving um, some actors in this fight enough credit in that this, this is – this is rhetorical innovation. Like the, the, this sort of, uh, uh, in the old parlance, Chinese finger trap they've created, <laughs> you know, where this circular reasoning is brilliant. And I don't think it's, it's, we've given it enough credit for being, um, it's brilliant in the way that uh, a lot of villains are, you know, it's formidable. And I feel that- and this is. And that's why I, we, we made the film, right? This is why, unless you understand the mechanism at play, you're hoodwinked. You know, you go into a debate or an argument and you're like, oh, 
what? I didn't know the rules of the game would change before. I had no idea. You know, what I, so, you know, I, I see, you know, you guys mentioned when we spoke about Sam Harris uh, at the top, you know, I remember this excruciating podcast that he did. He had a conversation with Ezra Klein. I feel like they were talking past each other because not understanding each other's language. You know, I, 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 I encourage people to watch my first film, Islam and the Future of uh, Tolerance. There's actually a moment where Sam real, you know, Sam, he didn't necessarily change his mind, but he realized the importance of the power of language and, and how to get an idea across. So in, in a way, yes, it is an extraordinary achievement uh, by people who understand postmodernism and, and, and really philosophy at, at the core of it, presenting a uh, pseudo-rational argument uh, uh, in a word salad that just sounds fantastic, right? It sounds uh, scientific. It sounds as it's based on reason, um, and it 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 makes people think. You know, when when Ibrahim X. Kendi said, uh, "Are you a racist or an anti-racist?" You feel like you have two options to pick from, right? It's it's presented with so much confidence, and you're like, "Can I be?" not racist, but then that was never an option. All of a sudden, the redefinition and the uh, propagation of here's a new word and this is a, a binary choice for you is slowly but surely integrated. So yes, we, but we should also talk about that, that, you know, when it happens, we should always talk about it. Like, are you trying to, you know, what is your definition? of the word that you're using. It's like that meme. I don't think that word means what you think it does. You know, <laughs> we should be comfortable in, in challenging that, but for to challenge that, you need to understand where, you know, what changes have been made. Mm. Um, but to your point, yes, it's an extraordinary achievement. <laughs> I thought we should give them some props. You know what I mean? <laughs> so uh, we hear cases of uh, radical students, you know, staffers and employees holding institutions and companies to ransom, you know, demanding that they disinvite speakers, drop authors, cancel publications and censor works. You mentioned a case of your own in which uh, a, a firm uh, you had hired, uh, you know, uh, sort of reneged on that offer, essentially because of uh, fear of a staffer-led revolt in the way we've seen it, I don't know, just to pick some out of the air, Penguin Publishing or Spotify or wherever. Uh, I got a couple of questions. When did the adults leave the room? Do you know what I mean? Like, and why do you <laughs> why do you think the leaders of these institutions and companies, some of them quite old and powerful, including the New York Times, uh, dare I say, seem to cave in these situations? And what can they do about it? So, I suppose what I'm getting at is, I find myself absolutely incredulous sometimes. I'm like. Okay, so the staffers at the New York Times came out and, you know, they had a Slack group that said the A, B or C. How come the boss didn't come out and say, get back to work? We're not doing anything about that. You know what I mean? So, um, I suppose, yeah, I just want to know what, what you think about when the adults left the room and, and, and why, why this happens continually. So, um, it, there's no real simple answer per se. Um, and. The, the hypothesis that you know I've seen that kind of makes sense is, remember this didn't happen overnight. Yeah. So the the um, uh, uh, Stephen Pinker says in our film that there are more professors at universities who 
uh, identify themselves as Marxist than conservatives. And so when you are presented a certain ideology uh, uh, and you know, when, you're, when you're young, uh, you want to leave a mark, you want to help the world, you, you're coming with a good intention and you want to stand up for what's wrong. And you are presented a world through a lens of, um, you know, here is what you can do, and here here are the e here are the evils. You know, it's it's very simple. It's, it's a relatively binary opportunity. It's presented to people. It's, it's and then they graduate. Then they go into uh, businesses and institutes. Now, when you go to larger organizations, right, you have to think about um, uh, risk mitigation. Right, you have to think about your shareholders. You have to think about the. Uh, effect it'll have on uh, the public perception of you, you have to weigh out, weigh out which way do I want to go. Uh, you can take the approach uh, Nike is taking, uh, which is quite simply, you know, we are going to heavily lean on the athletes because uh, uh, we know who is carrying our brand. It is, uh, you know, Black America. What is popular right now is to lean into Colin Kaepernick's and and pretty much Black Lives Matter ideology. I'm gonna we're gonna lean into it because compared to the backlash, we know we can see the data. This makes sense. It's good for business. So they take that approach. Then you look at uh, an organization like Chick Fil A. You know, they've done their numbers. They're like, you know what? We're going to lean in the other way, right? So it is not necessarily the adults have left the rooms. It's just adults have made a calculated decision. What is good for uh, the bottom line? Now, this doesn't always work, right? Um, and and to add to uh, add to the same point is those earlier, the, the students I've mentioned, they're now... Uh, the the people who are working at these organizations, right? I have a small business and I know how difficult it is to find people and keep people um, and then continue to grow. So it's just a ginormous headache. So they're just eliminating all those variables and they've come to the conclusion, this is the right way to go. Now, the problem with that is it doesn't always work out, especially in the uh, entertainment industry. I've seen film after film that has completely flopped because they've capitulated to what they believe what the audience will want because they've listened to a small group of uh you know people who have a very loud voice it, it, but what's going to happen is you, you spend 10 20 30 40 million dollars making a film and it bombs and it loses you 10 20 million dollars you're not going to try and make the same mistake again i can tell you you know hollywood knows all the issues it has, so it, it's treading very carefully. You know, these are very large organizations. They take a long time to make changes, and they're easily spooked. If there's enough outrage about a situation, they're just like, you know, it's not worth uh, the hassle. Let's just do this for now and then figure out what happens down the track. That's I, I tend to agree with everything you say, but I'm just so confused that a lot of these arguments don't seem to hold water on the on on behalf of these companies, though. So, if if you're at a meeting with the Spotify uh, interns and staffers who are all saying that you know Joe Rogan needs to be taken taken off, I mean, it shows a lack of understanding of business. Like the hundred million dollar deal, he's like you know leading the charge for the entire 
corporation. Um, and also, if we get rid of him or some of his stuff, like, what are we going to do about, um, you know, everything else that's on there? Do we get rid of, um, you know, all of our hip hop catalog, you know, to suit whatever you're saying? Like, you know what I mean? Like, it, it, all these companies, like at the New York Times, you know, if we fire someone, if we say that intention doesn't matter and if someone, you know, someone sneezed and made a sound with their mouth that sounded like the N-word and we fire them and we say intention uh, doesn't matter, that actually goes against um, the main principles of our masthead. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't understand why why we can't just say in some, like, some of these people who are, who are coming in and demanding this change, like, like that PR firm, that, that guy should have just come in and said, okay, so if we don't take this on, then what else am I saying that we're not, you know, don't I have to do everything you say? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, no. Look, uh, the the logical conclusion for this line of thinking is absolutely a disastrous end to any of those organizations. Uh, most of them do know that. And this is why Spotify, when they made the deal with Joe Rogan, they, I'm sure they knew what they were taking on. And I'm sure they knew there's going to be a certain amount of a certain percentage of a revolt. But look, it doesn't matter because there may be a thousand of their employees uh, having an issue with Joe Rogan. Um, I don't agree with many things he's said. Uh, he's trending today uh, because he's got COVID. And he's taking the, the I'm not going to say the I word, but he's taking a, uh, a, a naughty <laughs> yeah, he's drug. Taking, he's taking the naughty drug among a cocktail of other drugs, you know, and he, he's sort of, he's sort of told the line uh, uh, with, with, uh, vaccination, which I think is is, is is rather silly. But the point is, uh, none of that uh, dissuades an organization like Spotify. That's why they haven't even remotely considered dropping him. They're not going to do that. They're going to um, you know, make what makes really good business sense. And if you know what went, what the thought process an organization like Spotify uh, went through. If you look at the history, you know, Spotify wants to be the YouTube of audio. They didn't, you know, Joe Rogan just wasn't picked up randomly. It was a strategy. They had, they bought out Gimlet, they bought out Anchor, they bought out Megaphone, they bought out the entire uh, professional um, podcast uh, technology architecture first. And then they strategically went to the biggest podcaster just to make that claim. And his numbers have dropped a little, but that doesn't matter. Spotify's overall podcast platform continues to grow. So um, you know, staff and people can have a cry and whinge, but I don't think an organization like that will truly um, uh, you know, uh, capitulate to them. With regards to, say, New York Times, that's a different story because um just the, the their business model um and and uh, they they had an amazing run during um the the trump presidency uh, because you know there's a there's a, the picture perfect villain uh, and, and people needed to uh you know see that the, uh, you know, the, there's some validation of how they were thinking and and they, new york times was uh, the the bohemian that was there for uh, give them what they wanted to hear um and with that the you know the, the bargain they've made is now they also need to appease a certain number of their newly acquired fans and subscribers 
And that's why they occasionally, they tend to do just, they tend to give platforms to terrible opinions uh, and ideas and and sort of firing people. Uh, But I think, you know, I still have faith. I think it's regardless of how big, say, Joe Rogan's and Sam Harris's can get, I still think we still need institutional um, uh, mastheads um, and news organizations. There's still immense value in that. Um, And I think pendulum will swing back. You know, people like you, me, we are pushing that pendulum back. So I'm hopeful. Mm, That's great. It's great to have a bit of optimism uh, in amongst this all. Um, identity politics, the, the, the idea that everyone uh, can be defined by three physical characteristics, that being race, gender, and sexuality, has made the idea of empathy, of being able to understand and share the feelings of another human being, uh, almost impossible. Uh, how can we bring back the idea of empathy and, and how can different sides of the political divide find common ground? Uh, this is, you know... Um I think as 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 the human race, it's important. You know, we've always needed identity of sorts for our own uh, personal well-being. Um, you know, when I was living in Sri Lanka, uh, being a Sri Lankan meant something to me. Now, it was a long time ago. I no longer have that much. Uh, you know. I don't. I'm not the kind of guy that I'm proud to be Sri Lankan because I realized that you know I didn't do anything to be born there. I was just you know it's just a luck of the draw, luck of the draw, right? So I don't pay that much um, weight into that, but I do understand how when you lack an identity, you kind of hold on to that as religion becomes less and less important. Um, it's people. It's it's part of the human condition. So we first we need to understand that it is coming from um, the human condition. Um, now, how to uh, see beyond um, you know those uh, characteristics? It's who we choose to popularize. It's who you know people who are good at what they are because they are good at that thing, not because of their skin color um, or, 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 you know, sexual orientation, etc. The more we uh, galvanize those voices, um, I think that's how it'll seep through because there's, you know, uh, I don't know what, your, you know, yours, uh, either of your uh, religious affiliation and what I'm about to say is not even remotely considered, to, you know, in, intended to be uh, a, a, a take a, taking a swipe at you. But, you know, uh, the uh, movement galvanized by the Sam Harris's, uh, Richard Dawkins, D- Daniel Dennison Hitchens of the world started 20 years ago is bearing fruit now. I, they, this, uh, if there was ever a study, I, I am, I bet on it. There's a correlation of the decline of uh, traditional religion in the West and those four people, right? And the, uh, and there was enough there for them to get those messages out. And I think now there is a need for another movement like that, another group of people that needs to be out there talking about these things so people stop focusing 
on this identity uh, politics based on one's identity. I think that's uh, is the only way uh, I see out. Mm, yeah, I think that's really interesting to focus on uh, on on uh, bringing more attention to to people what, what whatever their field is for their for their for their achievements and their hard work rather than their their innate characteristics. And if we can if we can push that a little bit more, I, I feel like it's a, it's a bit more hopeful that we'll uh, turn away a little bit from uh, viewing everybody as as. Yeah, through those three characteristics and and basing an idea about who they are and and what their experiences has been have been just based on those characteristics. So I think that's a great uh, that's a great thing to 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 think about and to to look to do. I think. Yeah, I'm, I'm sort of my entire you know uh, purpose and and, and uh, I'm driven to do that. Uh, you know, whether it's it's uh, Kurt in my film or everybody else. And intellectuals, I'm I'm very big on making those public intellectuals who have those kind of thinking uh, visible to the public. And uh, earlier, I mentioned my conversations with those Hollywood execs is trying to tell them is we need to champion some of these people um, and and put them in popular culture. That's the only way we can change. Uh, people's minds if they're relegated to academia and this sort of you know a small vertical um we are not going to have the societal impact and then you know this is why i'm, I'm grateful for people like you who, who are you know helping get a movie like my little independent film out to people because that's part of the journey you know i am one of many who's trying to do that you know like you guys well I'd like to wrap up the meat of this uh, interview by uh, turning our attention to the practical and, and the future, So, which we have done a little bit already. But what do you think? Because I worry about, the, you know, if you can read cynical theories and Stephen Pinker and whatever, I think you're, you're well ahead. But, uh, you know, normal people, they're busy you know, and, and yeah. some of this work is dense. So what are some practical things people can do day to day to push back against, you know, some of this stuff? Uh, well, the first thing they should do is probably watch your documentary is what I would say. <laughs> What's the second thing That's they should do? Yeah, you're too kind. And, and, and you're absolutely right. And this is, this is the point I was getting, getting to. Um, you know, this is twofold. Um, people are already listening to, I mean, you know, many, many, many millions of people are listening to Joe Rogan's and, and Sam Harris's of the world. And they are carrying those conversations across. And so if you're one of those listeners, I think it's important taking those uh, conversations or the knowledge you gain and applying it in, in, in practical life and having those difficult conversations because you need to lead the conversation. If you can't have those conversations, you know, no one is. And, and it, it, I, I grapple with this situation is, you know, I try to have you know, having this conversation online on a, on a Twitter thread or a Facebook comment section, YouTube comment section is very, very difficult. Um, but um, it is still something that one needs to have. But when you do it, you know, we should always consider the humanity of the other person. You know, just recently I saw somebody that I personally know uh, posted about, um, you know, um, uh, something uh, anti-vax. And I, I approached that um, and I, I, I try to speak to the people and I, I barely have any time, but I try to approach, I, I try to answer people's uh, uh, 
misunderstandings or, or, or um, you know, misgivings to us because some of that comes from a true place. You know, big pharma is, uh, you know, has had its uh, negative dealings. Governments has had uh, done terrible things to its people. But that doesn't necessarily mean everything on either of those camps should be looked through a negative light. So when people say those things, understand where they're coming from and then try to have that conversation and not be scared of it because, you know, we were told not to talk about politics uh, in, in, in gatherings. We are told not to talk about religion. I think that's rubbish. You, you know, you can have those conversations with a certain amount of compassion in mind. And I try to do that. And whenever it try to go off the rails, I try to tell, you know, I try to bring it back. I was like, look, you know, this is not a personal attack of any sort. This is just me trying to understand where you're coming from. I think that's a very important step. And the second part of that step is um, I think it, it comes down to um, the, 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 the creators of um, uh, content. Like uh, music, if you're a musician, make a song about what, what you're trying to do. If you're a filmmaker, make a film about it or at least add some of those elements into your film so it'll get somebody thinking. And if you're an exec, uh, uh, again, you know, fun things that, are going against uh, a, a traditional norms or what, what is considered to be uh, okay. Um, and this is not me saying that, you know, um, there, are, there are bad ideas that we have uh, grappled with and we have decided that it should be in the dustbin of history. We moved on from those ideas. But newer ideas that, you know, no one's challenging, if someone is trying to challenge it, one should support it. And then the final point is support who are trying to do this. If you feel as this is important, if it's an independent film, go watch it If you know, or share it. If it is, it's a mainstream film that is getting a certain amount of flack because of a certain section, uh, try and tell others the context of where that's coming from. And if there's a musician that's making music like that, share it, you know, uh, art is subjective, you know, share it, support them. I think, I think those, those points will help us get across the line. Fantastic. Well, I think that that's a showstopper there. I, I, I would just like to, you know, uh, you know, very grateful. We're very grateful for you giving us all your time today. But I just want to ask you quickly to finish off uh, wrapping things up. Uh, I, I'm d- desperate to know what you're reading right now, <laughs> if I may. <laughs> if I may. Yes, actually, I got it right here with me. It's interesting that you ask. Oh, I, I, I'm reading two things. Um, I've I'm reading a book. This is actually my second read because I heard the audio book. Then I went and bought the actual book. Um, it's called Good Economics for Hard Times. It's by Nobel laureate uh, Abjit Banerjee and Esther uh, Duflo. Um, it is really an economics book, um, but it is a fascinating read. Um, and then I am uh, also listening to my friend, um, uh, John Safran's new book, uh, which is called Puff Piece, which is about what happened to Philip Morris and fascinating hilarious oh fantastic it's so good to get uh recommendations so mm. thanks for that <laughs> well, yeah we're, we're we're very grateful for your time dash and uh we just uh we, we think your film's an important work and we just really wanted to get you on the podcast and, and try and uh, get as many people as we can to hear about it and to go out and see it um we we thank you for your work and and for your time on the podcast today and um yeah, we hope to meet meet in person when uh, when lockdown's over one day. 
Thank you so much, guys. I really appreciate it. Um, I, I have to say, this is on, this is the first Australian podcast that sent me an invitation. I've been on some sizable podcasts all across the world, uh, but I did not. Uh, so this week has been quite a fascinating week because uh, an Aust- Australian publication uh, wrote about my film. Uh, you know, my first film didn't get a single men- mention in any Australian publications to date. So it was really surprising to see an Australian publication writing about my film. And then I was surprised when you guys reached out. So I'm very grateful that you guys invited me. So I'm happy to talk. New Flesh exclusive. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully, hopefully we won't be the last dash. So for sure, and, we'd love, so too. and we would love to have you back again to chat. Happy to. All right, guys, thank you Fantastic. so much. Thank you, thanks, Desh. Great. Well, thanks so much uh, to Desh for coming on our humble little podcast. Uh, what have we got? What have we got on the horizon, John? Oh, uh, well, next week we've got our Bill Murray double. That is Suburb Cinema um, on. Shoes on Wednesday, sorry, stripes and meatballs. Next Thursday, Sheila's back, the new Slash, uh, and uh, we've got some very exciting things coming up on on Cyber, some collabs which we'll talk about next week. Mm, yep, and I think we we may just talk about the CCP next week. Oh, maybe. yes. So definitely, get yourself strapped in for that if, uh, if that takes your fancy. It does. It does take my fancy. <laughs> All right. Excellent. Well, uh, until next week, long live the new flash. Long live the new flash.